Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Town City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Tuning in to your transmissions, I'm hooning, waiting to be found, and I'm building rockets, pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to show 640. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, the weather has changed over in the northeast of England. And yes, we have shorts and sliders on again this year. And it is absolutely lovely. We've got a few days off, so I've just been chillaxing in the allotment. If anybody wants to see is what I get up to in the allotment, do pop over to the YouTube, Tony C. Smith, and you will see me there. Yes. So, I'll tell you what's coming in a day show. We have The Message by Michael D. Burnside. This story is an original Starship Sober. This is Hattie here. Is something there? Starship Sober. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back a Genre History. That is all coming to the show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So, yes, it's still uncertain times around the world with this bloody pandemic. England's kind of how UK is coming out of it. But we still having spikes and we're all to kind of to pot, you know what I mean? We don't know, some places are getting locked down, some are getting partial lockdowns. It's such a strange time and, oh, America's no more, <laughs> what in the world there, you know what I mean? God, bloody hell, man. It's just like hideous, do you know what I mean? And it's the kids, it's the kids putting it about and partying. Do you know what I mean? I live on the coast. And honestly, every weekend, man, it's just jumping here. You know what I mean? Because people's being locked in their, in their houses and they, they want to just get out and see a bit of fresh air, which you can totally understand. Strange times anyway. Let us forget about that. Sit back, put on the headphones, block out, get the noise-cancelling ones out, get the fancy ones out, and just sit back for a fantastic story. Like I say, The Message by Michael D. Burnside and... An original there, the Starship's over. Michael D. Burnside is a graduate of the Ohio University. By day, he earns a living as a systems analyst, helping customers figure out what they need from their software. <laughs> Michael, you need to help me, lad. His interests include gaming, science, computer technology, history, politics, and, of course, writing. His fiction writing includes steampunk, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And his stories have been featured in multiple anthologies his short stories have also been featured in magazines such as devolution z outpost of beyond and gathering storm michael lives in daytona ohio with his wife and lots of cats read nice things about him as well as free stories at michaelburnside.com 
Now, this story is narrated by Tatiana Gray. Tatiana is a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen and the audio booth. She's been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing. She went to New York University and lives in Brooklyn, New York. And you can find her at Tatiana Gray. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Message by Michael D. Burnside The alarm bleats out its chime, but I'm already awake. I click it off and stare at the ceiling. The final message from the Amerigo arrives today. The message that had spent four years and three months hurtling through the cosmos as a radio wave. Today is the day it finally catches up to me. I wonder if today is the day I'll be charged with murder. We'd been working on the plan to send my husband Alex and me to Alpha Centauri for two years when the anomaly appeared. A random spot in space, just beyond Mars, began spewing out photons, gas, and the occasional small asteroid. It was unlike anything we had ever seen or even thought possible. Probes sent to the anomaly revealed it to be the tail end of a wormhole. Excitement grew when the entrance to the wormhole was detected in the Alpha Centauri system. The wormhole was not a two-way street. Gravitational forces pushed matter through the anomaly in one direction only. Still, it was an extraordinary phenomenon, one that added urgency to our mission planning. Our ship, the Amerigo, was powered by a cluster of antimatter rockets that would get us up to 48% of the speed of light. Yet even at that speed, the Alpha Centauri mission was planned as a 20-year trip. The wormhole provided the chance to cut that time in half. There were no guarantees. No one knew how long the wormhole would remain stable. It might vanish long before we ever arrived at its entrance. We might find the tidal forces around the entrance were too strong for our ship to safely enter it. So we planned the mission as if the wormhole wasn't even there, but held out hope that, after a ten-year journey, we might be able to instantaneously return home. I shower and dress. I'd decided the day before that I'd wait for the message at the World Space Agency's radio spectrum facility. If the authorities decided to arrest me, I didn't want them to burst into my home. I'd been honest in my debriefing. Everyone knows the transmission will arrive today. Given the worldwide attention my return had received, I expect the facility will be crowded with news media. Waiting at the facility also means I'll be spending time under my sister-in-law Cheryl's withering glare. I still feel going is better than hiding. Perhaps I also feel I deserve the scrutiny and the blame. I set my car to manual operation and delight in steering it through the twisting hills of Virginia. The sun shines brightly overhead, and the smell of pine wafts through the car's vents. If this is my last day of freedom, I couldn't have asked for a better one. I awoke on the Amerigo 
and spent a full minute refusing to open my eyes. Daily tasks awaited me, but most of them were just busy work meant to distract me from the realization that I was trapped in a room surrounded by a vacuum. The Amerigo was a massive ship, but almost all of its size was dedicated to engines, fuel, and shielding. The space left for human habitation was mostly taken up by provisions for the long journey. I opened my eyes. My husband loomed over me. We hadn't spoken to one another in months. What? I asked. He grabbed my hair and dragged me from my cot. He screamed at me. You moved the damn pasta containers! Didn't you? Didn't you? He threw me to the floor. The constant acceleration from the ship's engines caused me to slam onto the carpet, just as if we were having an argument in our apartment on Earth. Only we had never argued on Earth. Not like this. Alex and I had spent months training in isolation simulators. But months are not the same as years. My husband was a kind and caring soul when we left. But after years trapped within a space the size of a mobile home, that man faded away. I tried to scramble to my feet, but he kicked me in my stomach. I curled up in pain. Just admit it! Just admit you moved them! My mind, foggy from sleep and pain, tried to remember if I had moved the pasta containers. One could rarely retrieve anything from the overstuffed storage area without moving something else. The realization that the truth didn't really matter shoved itself into my brain. Yes, yes, I did, I gasped. I'm sorry. Alex bent down over me. Don't do it again! I spent thirty minutes looking for them! This is bullshit! Living with you is bullshit! The World Space Agency's employee parking lot is full. Media vans fill the visitor lot. I park across the street and dodge traffic to get into the main building. My badge allows me to slip unnoticed through a side door. I manage to avoid running into any reporters on my way to the main auditorium. Cheryl scowls at me as I walk into the room. I ignore her. I spot my manager, Ryan, and slip into the seat next to him. Marissa, how are you holding up? He asks. I shrug. We stare in silence at a projection of our solar system. A green dash represents the incoming radio wave. It speeds past Jupiter and heads straight toward Earth. Straight toward me. Day 3,648. Status is nominal. Nothing new to report. I clicked the black microphone hand piece back into its holder. I'd given the same report, with only the day number changing, for years. It took years for our messages to reach Earth. Earth sent us replies, but because they had to chase us, they took even longer for us to get them. Alex and I were both orphans. Minimal family ties were a mission requirement. I had no immediate family. Alex had only his sister. But that was enough to force my silence. I pictured her, eagerly waiting for his return back on Earth. How could I send a message detailing how the kind man she loved was gone 
and had been replaced by a brooding, violent monster. No one could come save me anyway, so I tried to leave the memory of her sibling in peace. The green dash touches earth. The speakers in the room cackle. I wince and sink into my seat. I cover my eyes even though there's nothing to see. This is Marissa! Alex is trying to kill me! The frightened voice that rings out into the room doesn't sound like me. I remember being terrified as I'd shouted into the microphone. But I'd underestimated how strongly my fear had permeated my speech. A scream burst from the speakers, followed by the sound of a struggle. A female voice yells out, Get off me! Get off me! The sound I dread arrives. A percussive impact thuds throughout the auditorium, and the assembled crowd gasps. It was the sound of me smashing the microphone into Alex's head. Alex's sister had read my report. She'd always maintained I'd set myself up to make a case for self-defense in the murder of her brother. I'd made an overly dramatic call and then bludgeoned him to death. How could she believe anything else? The sweet man that had left Earth wasn't capable of attacking his wife. I had no defense against her accusation. I hadn't mentioned his behavioral changes in any of my status reports. He was dead, and I was alive. The only other evidence was the broadcast I had sent, which ended when I'd shattered the microphone on Alex's head. But then, something unexpected happened. The broadcast kept going. It was the first time in years we'd done science together. Twin suns lay before us, brilliant dots of light marked planets speeding through the binary system. We were the first humans to ever visit another solar system. The promise of exploration and discovery lay at our feet. We ignored it. Instead, we focused on a whirling cauldron of color. The entrance to the wormhole glowed from heated gas being drawn into it. The fact that the entrance was visible to our naked eyes was a bad sign. It meant the gravitation force of the wormhole was strong enough to generate an accretion disk, hot enough to generate light. That didn't bode well for us being able to safely traverse it. Our sensors confirmed our fears. The gravitational forces being generated by the wormhole exceeded the amount of force our ship could withstand. Not by much, but that hardly mattered, when the end result would be the ship's disintegration. A heaviness settled over me that threatened to crush my heart. We'd have to go home the long way. It would take us ten years to return to Earth. Ten more years of living with a man who looked like a haggard version of my husband, but no longer retained any trace of his personality. Even the mere six months we'd spend exploring the Alpha Centauri system seemed unbearable. I took a deep breath and forced the despair from my mind. We had traveled farther than any other human beings in history. We had the opportunity to explore the universe in a way no one else ever had. And early explorers always pay a heavy price. There was no choice but to bear it and take advantage of the scientific opportunity we'd earned. I saved the sensor data and clicked on the navigation system. The gravitational pull is stronger than we thought it would be, 
so I'll have to correct our course, I told Alex. I sighed. If nothing else, we can use it to slingshot us through the system. Alex stared at his hands for a long moment and then shook his head. No. What do you mean, no? I asked. Why shouldn't we use the wormhole's pull as an acceleration boost? I mean, no more of this. He turned and looked at me with unblinking eyes. No more of this. No more of being trapped in this tiny tin can with you. There's no choice, I replied. But of course, there was. An icy chill raced up my spine. He unstrapped himself. We had stopped the Amerigo's acceleration as we had surveyed the wormhole, so he floated free of his chair. His unkempt blonde hair drifted in front of his face. What are you doing? I demanded. He reached down and unbuckled my harness. I pushed myself out of my chair and away from him, but he grabbed onto the collar of my flight suit. He planted his leg on the edge of the control console for leverage and threw me across the cabin. I spun myself around and landed gently on the far wall, but Alex launched himself after me. He got a hold of me again, and we tangled in midair, rolling over and over. I tried to shove his arms off of me, but he was too strong. I landed several kicks, but couldn't inflict enough pain to get him to let me go. As we struggled, we floated near the starboard airlock. Alex slapped his hand against the control that opened the inner door. He threw me in. I grabbed onto the edge of the hatch. He smashed his fist into my fingers until I lost my grip. He slammed the door shut. Fear tore at me. Inside the airlock was another set of controls. I mashed the button that would open the inner door again and again. But Alex held the door shut. Through the small window in the door, I watched as his finger lightly tapped on the button that would open the outer door and hurl me out into vacuum. Alex! You can't do this! I screamed. What happened to you? We promised to always be together. Tears clung to my eyes. I saw Alex frown and nod. You're right, he said. I could barely hear his voice through the heavy door. He pushed himself away from the airlock, back toward the cockpit. I jabbed the open door button. The inner airlock door sprang open, and I hurled myself back into the main module of the ship. Alex was doing something with the pilot controls, so I pushed myself toward him. The Amerigo's rockets fired. I crashed to the floor hard and slid forward into the communications console. I grabbed onto the console and pulled myself to my feet. I wasn't sure how I was going to stop Alex from doing whatever he was doing. Standing in front of the communications equipment, I realized it was likely I wouldn't survive, and I desperately wanted someone to know what had happened to me. I grabbed the microphone and keyed the radio on. This is Marissa! Alex is trying to kill me! The sound of my voice grabbed Alex's attention. He jumped up from the pilot seat and charged me. I screamed as he barreled into me and drove me to the floor. I tried to push him away with one hand while holding onto the microphone with the other. Get off me! Get off me! I pulled the microphone up to my lips so I could continue to broadcast, but Alex wrapped both of his hands around my throat and cut off my air supply. The blood in my head throbbed as I fought for air. I smashed the microphone into his head. The microphone's black casing shattered like glass. Blood ran from Alex's scalp and splattered onto my flight suit. 
His grip around my throat loosened. I need him hard in the groin. He collapsed and I shoved him off of me. I clambered to my feet and stumbled into the cockpit. I scanned the control console as I sank into the pilot seat. Alex had pointed the Amerigo directly at the wormhole and accelerated toward it. We were already caught in the wormhole's gravity well, too far in for the Amerigo to have any hope of escaping it. I heard Alex stirring behind me. I only had a few minutes left to live. He would make each of those minutes terrible. A blinking red light on the console warned me that the inner airlock door remained open. I decided to die on my own terms. I strapped myself in. Alex placed his hand on the pilot seat's headrest just as I flipped open the safety cover for the outer airlock door. He immediately knew what I had planned to do. You're still gonna die, he screamed at me. But at least I'll be alone, I whispered. I stabbed the outer airlock door button with my finger and held it down. The door opened with a loud pop, and air rushed out of the cabin. My chair shook as Alex fought to maintain his grip. But then the outward flow of atmosphere tore him away. He slammed into the outer rim of the airlock with a heavy thud. The pressure differential folded his body in half and pulled him from the ship. He was gone in an instant. I felt a weight lift off of me. The air in my lungs fled my chest. Everything went black. The option to decompress the main cabin was only available for extreme emergencies, such as the presence of a fire. The outer door automatically closed as soon as I passed out and my finger slid off the button. My skin tingled as cool air from the ceiling vents flowed into the cabin. I awoke as the ship groaned in agony. The wormhole dragged the ship into itself like a spider pulling in its prey. The tidal forces caused the ship to yaw wildly. G-forces shoved me sideways so hard I thought my bones would break free of my body. A swirling rainbow of light streamed just outside the cockpit glass. It was beautiful, but painfully bright. I heard metal rip and tear, and then the ship spun fully around. The tail section of the Amerigo, its engine still alight, flew by, trailing a stream of debris. Freed of its heavy counterweight, the habitat module spun even faster. The edge of my vision grew dark, and I knew I was about to lose consciousness for the last time. I had already accepted my death. There wasn't enough time for sorrow. The message cuts out as the Amerigo plunges into the wormhole. As the last bit of static warbles out of the speakers, the auditorium falls eerily silent. The tidal forces had ripped the ship in two and skinned every antenna from its hull. The habitat module had miraculously stayed intact. I had drifted in space for weeks with no power, expecting to slowly die in the cold dark as the air in the cabin grew contaminated with my own breath. But a probe had detected my exit from the wormhole, and a rescue vessel had arrived just in time. For the past four years, I had assumed the message had ended the moment I hit Alex with the microphone. But apparently, only the outer casing had broken. The microphone had kept transmitting. It hadn't caught my whispered desire to die alone— so the last words that shrieked into the auditorium were Alex's declaration that I was still going to die.
It made his intention to kill me painfully clear. Cheryl stands with tears streaming down her face and walks out. My heart breaks for her. And yet, I feel fully alive for the first time since my return. The past has caught up with me, and it has set me free. There you go. Big thank you, Michael, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Like I say, an original. It's an honour to get that off you. And Tatiana, it's lovely to have you back on. Thank you so much indeed. So we have our very own, and yet I, I'm going to apologise now and get it out of the way because Amy knows what I'm going to say. This is Amy's August segment, but it was supposed to be a July segment, but didn't Ditsy here forget? Forget that Amy had emailed us and sent it over, and I just kind of carried on regardless and forgot to play Amy's little segment there. So, yes, this should have been played in July. Amy, please forgive. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today I have a little bit of everything for you. I'd like to cover some of the news, exciting news that is out about genre history new books available, things like that. So to start, let me tell you that on August 22nd, 2020, which is, in fact, the 100th birthday of Ray Bradbury, we are getting the third and final book in a three-volume biography of Ray Bradbury, and it is called Ray Bradbury Beyond Apollo. That joins the other two volumes in the series. Those are Becoming Ray Bradbury and then Ray Bradbury Unbound. And all three are by Jonathan R. Eller. Eller is Chancellor's Professor of English at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis, the Senior Textual Editor of the Institute for American Thought, and the director of the Center for Ray Bradbury's Studies at IUPUI. You may recall that I talked about my visit to the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies on episode 593, and I had the very good fortune to meet Dr. Eller there, and he knows his Ray Bradbury. I got the first two volumes when I was there, and now I'm looking forward to the third volume. And you don't have to trust me. Here is what Dana Joya, the former chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, said about the first two books. Few contemporary authors have been written about as extensively as Ray Bradbury, but no one has surpassed Jonathan Eller. In his previous study, Becoming Ray Bradbury, he captured the odd nature of Bradbury's imagination perfectly in the context of his life and age, keeping a myriad of influences and ambitions in perspective. With the publication of Ray Bradbury Unbound, Eller not only confirms his position as the great comprehensive Bradbury scholar, he has also written what may be the best single account of a major science fiction author's rise to fame and achievement. So that is quite the endorsement. The last volume, Ray Bradbury After Apollo, of course, follows the last part of Bradbury's career and life. 
So, if you're looking for a way to celebrate the 100th birthday of Ray Bradbury, well, you can add that book to the collection and have the complete three-volume story of Ray Bradbury. That is like the other two books from the University of Illinois Press. And there's more good news. You may recall that in episode uh, 612, 612, I talked about the book Monster She Wrote, The Women Who Pioneered Horror and Speculative Fiction by Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson. And I'm very happy to report that Valancourt Books is partnering with those two scholars to bring back some of the out-of-print and difficult-to-find fiction from some of the writers that are highlighted in Monster She Wrote in a new series they are calling, yes, the Monster She Wrote series. Oh, and another cool thing. The cover art for Monster She Wrote is very unique. It's just fantastic. And each of the reissued books in the series from Valancourt will have matching, comparable, complementary artwork, different colors but the same style, and they are going to be amazing. So, Valancourt has announced the first two books that will be in the series, and the first is available now for pre-order. The first is a Bram Stoker Award nominee from 1992, and that is Nightmare Flower by Elizabeth Ingstrom. It's a collection of her short fiction. 18 short stories, a novelette, and a short novel. Just to give you a sense of where Ingstrom's coming from, her work's been published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, horror show, American fantasy magazine, and cemetery dance. And here is how Valancourt Books describes this collection. In these stories, you will read about a woman asked to be complicit in her own mother's death, a grandmother with a macabre hobby, a bizarre phallic-shaped flower that portends evil for a married couple, a father whose son is caught up in a sinister government experiment. These are weird and unsettling tales that will linger with the reader. And I should also note that there will be a new introduction to this book, written by Monster She Wrote co-author Lisa Kroger. And the second book in the series, wait till you hear about this, it's called The Women of Weird Tales, and it includes almost lost to time, stories by Everell Worrell, Eli Coulter, Mary Elizabeth Councilman, and Gray Laspina. And it's worth pointing out that in Monster, she wrote, the authors note that two of the most popular writers in Weird Tales, based on readers' votes and mail, were women. They were, in fact, Gray Laspina and Everell Worrell. So it's going to be really nice to have these stories in a new edition all together for readers to enjoy. And that will be introduced by Melanie Anderson, the other author of Monster She Wrote. And Monster She Wrote does, in fact, cover all four of those women of Pulp Fiction 
Everell Worrell, Eli Coulter, Mary Elizabeth Councilman, and Gray Lespina. And so, needless to say, I think this new series is very exciting. And you can find out more at Valancourt Books. And Valancourt is spelled V-A-L-A-N-C-O-U-R-T. Go to their website and they have all the details. And lastly, I want to give a shout out to a truly amazing website. It is intended for primarily teachers, but as you will see, it offers some great material for people who are interested in genre as well, and I will give you a very specific case study on that. It is hosted by Commonplace, the Journal of Early American Life, and the website is Just Teach One. So what's the purpose of this website? Well, it explains that the creators of Just Teach One hope to make forgotten or neglected early American texts available for readers. And here's sort of the outline of what they're trying to do. First, and I'm quoting here, first, with the generous support of the American Antiquarian Society and Commonplace, which is the Journal of Early American Life, we hope to provide a body of publicly available scholarly transcripts of early texts with basic editing and apparatus. Second, we hope to provide a critical mass of teachers incorporating the new text into their classroom. And finally, and most importantly, these teachers provide reflections on the text, insights and reaction, intertextual possibilities, and so on, in ways that should provide guidance for other teachers. And I would add, and for other readers, because seeing how these texts are taught, how they're discussed, the questions they raise, that can be very useful for readers as well. And why am I talking about this in the context of genre history? One of the works that is posted there for free use and enjoyment is The Black Vampire, A Legend of Santo Domingo from 1819, written by, and this is a pseudonym, so the actual author is contested, Uriah Derrick Darcy. The text that's available on this site was prepared by Ed White from Tulane University and Duncan Faraday from Queens College and the SUNY Graduate Center, with the help of Tony Wall Jordan from Hendricks College. So they provide an introduction and very useful notes and then the text. And this story is quite amazing. As Andrew Barger says in The Best Vampire Stories 1800 to 1849, a classic vampire anthology from 2012, the black vampire is credited as the first black vampire story, the first comedic vampire story, the first vampire story by an American author, and perhaps the first anti-slavery short story. That's quite a lot of firsts. The story follows a black slave who is killed by his master and then resurrected as a vampire, and thus given the opportunity to seek revenge on his owner-slash-murderer. And if you go to access this and download the story from the Just Teach One site, you not only get 
the text and the scholarly introduction, but you have opportunity to read teaching reflections from different participants, different teachers and professors who have used this in the classroom. And those reflections give different directions and different avenues for thinking about the story. Some of those include uh, vampirism and fears of mixture, and the natural world, body horror, food, even rethinking Gothic literature and the literary canon through the Black Vampire. Lots of good stuff there, lots of food for thought, and context for understanding the story and its moment in history. It is framed, in a sense, with the events leading up to the Haitian Revolution. So you can find the story and all of this extra material for free at the Just Teach One site, which is jto.common-place.org. Again, that's jto.common-place.org. I hope you have enjoyed this little collection of news items, a couple of things you might want to purchase, and something you might want to download for free. I will leave you with a passage from The Black Vampire from 1819. Imagine, if you can, her surprise, when, by a certain carnivorous craving in her maw, and by putting this and that together, she found she was a vampire, and gathered from her indistinct reminiscences of the preceding night that she had been then sucked, and that it was now her turn to eject the peaceful tenants of the grave— with this delightful prospect of immortality before her, she began to examine the grades for a subject to satisfy her furious appetite. When she had selected one to her mind, a new marvel arrested her attention. Her first husband got up out his coffin, and with all the grace so natural to his countrymen, made her a low bow in the last fashion, and opened his arms to receive her. I look forward to joining you again very soon with something completely different as we take another look back into genre history. Until then, stay safe and stay well, my friends. Thank you. And there you go. Yeah, I'm sure she's forgiven us by now. Do you think? So that is today's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Please think about donating and going over to there to Patreon and putting your money down so we can keep on going and flying into the distant stars and horizons. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. Thank you for listening. I don't get that much. I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm rooting, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you Speed. By the time I get
get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. 